This morning we return one last time to these same five verses uh, here in Ephesians chapter 5. And this morning we come with this purpose. We come to answer this question, why? Why is it that we are to submit to one another? As we saw last week. Why is it that we are to do any of the things, to obey any of the commands at which we've been looking over the course of these past five weeks? Because if we try to live out these commands, submitting to one another, if we try to do any of the other commands at which we've looked for any other reason, then the reason that we're going to look at this morning, each of them will become a drudgery to us. They'll become a burden. And each one of those commands will become like a chain that binds us. I must make right choices. Ugh. I have to understand what God's will is for my life. Ugh. My time is not my own. I need to make the most of every opportunity the Lord gives to me. Ugh. I've got to submit and serve all of these people. Sheesh. You know. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way the Lord intends it to be. Living out the Christian life, this may come as a shock to some of you, but living out the Christian life is supposed to be a joy, not a burden. And this morning we're going to see why it is that we can live out, why we can obey with joy. So toward that end, if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read The word of the one and only true and living God, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning again this week in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, again we ask that you would bless, as you promised to do, the reading and the hearing of your word. Father, we pray that through the power of your spirit, your word would find its way deep into our hearts. And from there, Lord, we pray that change would spring from our hearts and just go throughout our entire being to influence the way we think, the words we speak, and the acts we do. Lord, do it for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So here's the reason why. Here's the reason why we submit to one another. Here's the reason that we do everything we've looked at over the course of the past five weeks. And the reason is this. We do it for or out of reverence for Christ. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. What is reverence for Christ? Some of the versions from which you're reading have God instead of Christ. And they have the word fear instead of the word reverence. So just to clear that up early on, the best Greek manuscripts we have and the earliest Greek manuscripts we have have the word Christ there instead of God. And ultimately, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But but having the word Christ there better helps us achieve the goal which we're after this morning. 
living out uh, the Christian life with joy because it fixes our eyes on the person of Christ, God, who took on flesh and came to dwell among us. It's the word translated fear or reverence that we need to be most clear about in our understanding. What is it that Paul is commanding us to do when he says to submit to one, one another out of fear or reverence for Christ? We have to know because that's what we're commanded to do. The Greek word that's used here for fear or reverence is phobos. Easy to hear there that that's where we get the word phobia. And we all know what a phobia is. You know, it's, a, it's a persistent, irrational fear of an object or an activity or a situation that leads to a compelling desire to avoid it. A phobia is a fear. And maybe that's the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear this verse. Do everything out of fear of Christ. Maybe it's that kind of fear. And maybe you have that kind of fear because of the way you're living your life. But this word, like many Greek words and like many words in our language, has a wide range of meaning. Take our word plant, for instance. Is a plant something you eat? Yes. Is a plant a place you go to work? I'm going to work at the assembly plant. Yes. Maybe plant isn't a, a noun at all. Maybe it's a verb. Is it something you do with seeds? Yes. It's all of those. So which is it? Which is the right meaning? Well, it depends on the context. And so too, this word fear. This word fear, phobos, can mean to be afraid, to be scared, to be alarmed, to be frightened. I had surgery on both of my jaws, extensive surgery, about 10 years ago. And I looked awful after the surgery. <laughs> I looked terrible. In fact, I looked shocking. My face was tremendously swollen and it was bruised. And in addition to that, it was completely numb. Every single nerve in my face was dead. And so I had absolutely no facial expression at all. Well, when I came home from the hospital a couple of days later, Anna Ruth, uh, my youngest daughter, who was a bit of a daddy's girl, she would not come to me. She was so afraid of me that she hid behind Kathy, my wife's legs. And I said, Anna, it's okay, it's daddy, (laughs) which probably didn't help the situation any, but she, she still wouldn't come. So I think she intended to hide behind her mother's legs until I just went away. Well, Kathy, you know, afraid that my feelings would be hurt after all that I'd been through. She said, Anna, go give your daddy a hug. So Anna darted out from behind her legs, ran up to me, gave me a half hug on my leg, and ran back to her hiding place. Anna was so afraid of me, afraid of me, wouldn't come near me. We got to make sure that we know that the kind of fear that Paul talks about here is not the kind of fear that would keep us away from Jesus. Not the kind of fear that would make us avoid him. A kind of fear that would cause us to hide from him because we're not sure what it is exactly that he would do to us. Because you see, that's the kind of fear that Jesus came to eliminate. He came to eliminate the kind of fear that keeps us away from God. He came to make a way for us to get to God in spite of our sin. You know, Adam and Eve hid in fear 
after they sinned. They sinned and they hid. And God called out, Adam, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. And I hid myself because I was afraid. How long would Adam and Eve have hidden? What was their hope? If they hid long enough that God would just give up in frustration because he couldn't find them and that he would just go away and that they would never have to see him again, what was their hope? What are, are you doing that makes you want to hide from God? It makes you afraid to come into his presence. See, God wants us to be found. God wants us to be found. Even in our sin, he wants us to come to him for forgiveness. That's why Jesus came. And so if you fear Jesus, the Christ, if you're afraid to come to him, if you're afraid of of coming out of hiding to embrace him and to be embraced by him, you don't really know him. In fact, that kind of fear, that kind of fear of Jesus prevents you from the kind of fear that you should have for him, that he, Jesus, in spite of your sin, in spite of my sin, that he would allow us to come to Him. That's the kind of fear or reverence that we should have for Him. It's the awe of the kind of Savior that He is. It's awe for the kind of man that He was while He walked on this earth calling sinners, terrible sinners of all kinds to come to Him, to come near to Him, to be around Him. He who is holy And without sin, even though they weren't. And so that should cause us to emit a reverent, wow, that's the kind of Savior you are. It's all of Jesus. And this kind of awe is perhaps better demonstrated in the lives of people than it is explained. David had this kind of awe. He wrote in Psalm 8, Oh Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him, man, with glory and with honor. Wow. That's the kind of God that you are. If you created all of this, if you are powerful enough to to create and sustain everything that I see around me, why would you even take notice of me? Moses had that kind of awe. God called to him from a bush that was on fire, completely on fire, but the bush wasn't consumed. And the voice of God called out to Moses from the bush. And he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then God told Moses, Now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go? Isaiah had it. He wrote this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple and the seraphs, the angels were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, 
the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Wow. Elizabeth had it. Her cousin Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to visit her while she was carrying Jesus in her womb. And when she entered her, her home, Elizabeth said, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Wow. John the Baptist had it. His message was, after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Wow. Paul had it. He writes, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Wow. Who am I, Lord, in light of who you are? I'm not worthy. This is reverence. This is all. This is the fear of the Lord. Do you have it? If you do, you're bowled over by. You're undone by, in disbelief of the fact that a God like God, that a Savior like Jesus would, would want me and would want you, would even allow us to come into His presence. And, and, and so tell me exactly when is it that that feeling should go away? When is it in our lives that you and I should stop saying, wow, when? Tell me when it is that that feeling should be taken for granted, that it should become common to us. When is it that we should stop being amazed by grace? See, it's this daily amazement, this reverence for Christ, this awe of who He is, That's the reason, that's the why for everything else that we do. It's why we submit to one another. Because we reverence Christ and He asks us to. It's why we consider carefully how we live and and, and are intentional about the decisions we make about how we live our lives because we reverence Christ and He asks us to. This is why we make the most of every opportunity And see time not as ours, but as given to us because we reverence Christ and He asks us to. It's why we give thanks for everything always because we reverence Christ and He asks us to. And right on down the list we could go of all that we've talked about over the course of these last five weeks. You see, this is what makes the Christian life not rules, not rules, not rules, but relationship. Rules bind you. They bind me. They they constrict us. They they shut us down. They defeat us. That's what rules do. But relationship doesn't. Relationship sets us free. You know, it happens far too seldom in this life. It happens far too seldom in this life. In marriage, in friendships, in relationships between parents and children. But when it happens, when you know that you are loved unconditionally, it sets you free. It happens far too often. 
unconditional love, but when you experience it in your life, it sets you free. Because when you are loved unconditionally, you don't fear rejection anymore. You don't worry about condemnation anymore. You don't worry about abandonment anymore. You don't worry about performing anymore. Because you're loved unconditionally. And the good news is that what we find far too seldom in our relationships here on earth, we find unfailingly, unfailingly with Jesus. And His unconditional love for us. We who are believers in Christ, that's what we have. And He didn't put conditions on His love for us before He called us. He didn't put conditions on us before He justified us. He didn't put conditions on us that we had to do before he said, welcome to our to my family and adopted us as sons and daughters. He just loved us. And that love should set us free knowing that someone loves you like that. And so the Christian life becomes not something we have to do. It's something that we want to do for the one who has loved us so much. And when you and I hear the call that comes to us from right here in Ephesians chapter 5, to to be imitators of God, to be imitators of Christ, it should never be, oh, I have to. It should be, no, I want to. I want to be like Jesus. I want to try to be like Jesus. Who wouldn't want to try to be like Jesus? What did he ever do wrong? Nothing. What did he ever do that was hurtful or harmful? Nothing. From him, people received grace after grace after grace. And I'm not saying that it's easy. Jesus is God, and we are not God. I hope you know that. Jesus is God. We are not God. But this is what Jesus gives the ones he loves to be able to do what he calls us to do. He gives us his spirit. His spirit. His spirit. The spirit It was in Jesus, if you can even imagine the spirit that was in Jesus, he gives to us so that you and I can do what would otherwise be impossible for us to do. What is impossible when we are driven by rules and not by relationships? And that's why we look for two weeks at this command here in verse 18, be filled with the spirit. And this is what Jesus says about the spirit. Jesus words, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the father. And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears. And He'll tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. That's the Spirit we have. The Spirit of Jesus living in us that that points us to Him, that fixes our eyes on Him, that helps us remember who He was and and what He did and, and what He said 
and how it is that we can bring glory to him. And when we put these words in their context, when Jesus actually spoke them to his disciples, we remember that he said these words to them in the upper room on the last night of his life, at the Last Supper. And what exactly had the disciples seen Jesus do on that night? of which the Spirit needed to remind them of and empower them to do. They had seen Jesus do what he should, in their estimation, have never, ever done. I bet the disciples were too embarrassed, too embarrassed to even look up from the table when Jesus got up, took off his garments, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed their feet. Peter said, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And I think Jesus must have been, Judas must have been completely repulsed at the display. And I think, personally, that this is what finally drove Judas to betray Jesus. Because Jesus, the man he had followed, the man that he believed would become a king, would instead of wearing a crown, wear a towel and degrade himself by this shameful act. It was disgusting, I believe, to Judas. It didn't endear Jesus to Judas, that Jesus would love him enough to wash his feet. I don't think Judas wanted to be loved in that way because he perceived that way to be such a weak way. But it isn't weak if it's Jesus' way. And that's what he chose to do, to humble himself before his disciples and to wash their feet and so when you and i submit to one another love and serve one another as we're called to do it's out of reverence for christ and what he did the example that he set for us we don't want to take jesus seriously at this point in the upper room sometimes i think we want to jerk the towel out of his hand And take the pitcher of water away from him. You know, it takes more than a dozen servants to run Downton Abbey. It's an enormous estate, an enormous house on an enormous estate in England. And one of the servants, Downton Abbey, is in charge of ironing the newspaper. Ironing the creases out of the newspaper before the master of the house sees it. One lowly kitchen servant asked the servant who was doing the ironing, why are you ironing the newspaper? A third servant, a little higher up, responds curtly, to dry the ink, stupid, so the master's hands won't be as black as yours. That's the way we do it. Perhaps the servants long to be the masters themselves. But as long as they are the servants, they will not allow the master or the mistress or their children to lower themselves to read a wrinkled newspaper, for goodness sake, or to get ink on their hands. Jesus turns it around. The master becomes the servant. And that's why submitting to one another is is so crucial. Because as we saw last week when we looked at the same verse, the horizontal relationships are where the rubber meets the road for us. Will we live out the Christian life? Will we be imitators of Christ? Will we? He was a foot washer. The horizontal relationship between us is what the world sees. 
And Jesus wants the world to see how he ordered things, which is very different from the way the world orders things, from the way Downton Abbey orders things. Jesus says the one who would be great must be the servant of all. Jesus says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so the towel, the basin of water are the symbols of who we are to be and what we are to do to submit and to serve one another out of reverence for Christ. In the same night that Jesus washed the disciples' feet and Jesus went out to betray him, Judas went out to betray him, Jesus prayed to the Father, All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Is that not amazing? Jesus says glory has come to him through his disciples, through men like you and me. I can't get my mind around that, that the king of glory, the king who is glory, is is somehow glorified through me and through you. How can it be? How? Certainly he's glorified in that payment for sin on the cross was sufficient. It was enough. His payment on the cross was efficient. It, it accomplished the purpose that Jesus intended it to, purpose, to, to, to do. It saved us. It was powerful enough, his sacrifice on the cross, to rescue us, to save us from the ki- kingdom of darkness and move us into the kingdom of light. It reflects his redeeming love and power. But he's also glorified. He receives glory when the love and the grace that he has poured out on all of us, when the love and the grace that he's poured out on us is evidenced in our lives. Jesus intends his glory to shine through us, and that's so humbling. Christ's glory coming through me. Christ's glory coming through you. And how seriously are we taking that? He's glorified when the work of his very own spirit is seen in us. And so where is the evidence, the work of the Spirit in your life? You know what? Because we have studied this passage for six weeks now, we've studied for six weeks, you and I are responsible in a way that we've never been before. The image of Christ in us that the world sees should be clearer and sharper right now than it has ever been before in our lives. There should be evidence of it. Because God calls us to not just be hearers of his word, but doers of his word as well. And so it's a tragic thing. It's a tragic thing to hear God's word and to understand what God is calling us to do and to sit there or to stand here And be unmoved, unchanged. And I know for certain that we don't have to be unmoved. And we don't have to be unchanged. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, as we've been challenged by these verses to be, we can be transformed. We can be changed. And that change is evident in our lives. That change looks like making different choices as one who loves Jesus, that change looks like being intentional about studying the Word of God. And so you know from its pages more and more who Jesus is. That change looks like now making the most of every opportunity that the Lord gives to you. That change looks like 
a difference in the way you speak to other people. You speak the truth of Jesus and God and the things of God as we speak to one another with psalms and hymns and and spiritual songs. That change looks like being thankful people. People who are thankful for everything, always. That change looks like submitting to one another. We've never done it before. Loving and serving one another. Thinking of others as better than ourselves. And so I've been praying for you And I've been praying for myself that all of us together are now experiencing that transformation. Because I know that when that transformation happens among us, it will please our Father. He'll be so pleased that His children are doing what He called them to do. And it will make a difference, an eternal difference in the person who saw that change and who saw that image of Christ in you. Because if that person is a believer, then you just ministered to them. You built them up in their faith. And you encourage them to bear the image as you are bearing it. If that person is an unbeliever who saw that change, then perhaps your desire and your faithfulness in bearing the image of Christ in front of them so they could see it, perhaps that made an eternal difference in their lives. And you do it not because you have to. You do it because you want to. Because you have reverence for Christ. Because you're in awe of Him. Because you are amazed by Him. And amazed by His grace. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You now. And Father, we really, we we plead that You would not allow us to be unchanged people that you would not allow us to be unmoved by your word, that we would not dismiss it, Lord, that we would not be bored by it. Lord, that we would be changed by your word through the power of your spirit. We want to be these people that you've called us to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. We want to live those things out in our lives because it pleases you, Lord, because it advances your kingdom and because you give us the power to do it. You don't ask us to do anything. You don't empower us to do. You give us your spirit. Lord, I pray that mighty change will come to Redeemer, to our body, to our family here, because all of us are seeking this transformation in our lives. Father, I pray that the city of Charleston would be different, would be changed, would be impacted in eternal ways that your gospel would go out into this city and around the world because we're committed to taking the gospel because we're in awe of you because we're in awe of the gospel because we can't believe it because it's too good to be true and because we want other people to experience it as well so we pray that you'll do this in us and through us continue to amaze us every day of our lives by your love and your grace we pray In Jesus' name, amen.